Welcome to the Pursuit of Wellbeing podcast. My name's Maria Brosnan. I'm the founder of Pursuit and your host for the show. This podcast is dedicated to providing well-being information, inspiration, and support for teachers, leaders, and school staff around the world. My guest today is Simon Ward. Simon is a senior educational psychologist in the Wirral in the north of England, where his specialism is positive psychology and well-being. For a number of years, Simon has been running a variety of projects to develop the attitudes, skills and experiences which allow individuals and organisations to thrive and lead to success and achievement. As a trainer, he's delivered seminars on a range of topics, including motivation and learning, positive behaviour management and solution orientated approaches. Simon is currently a consultant for the Cambridge Learning Journey. Simon, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much for having me. It's lovely to be here. Yeah, great to great to meet you and to, to talk about positive psychology. And that feels like a good place to start for, for people who might not have heard that term. Could you just tell us what is positive psychology? Yeah, positive psychology um, came around in, it seems like a long time ago now, 1998. Yeah. Uh, but it, it, in terms of, I suppose, the whole movement, that's not a long time at all. And it originated with a psychologist called Martin Seligman, who at the time was appointed the chair of the American Psychological Association. Um, People may have heard of Martin Seligman. He's the um, psychologist who coined the term kind of learned helplessness. He's focused Mm -hmm. on on optimism and the development of optimism through his his life. Mm -hmm. And he was chair of the Psychological Society. And in his opening address, um, he kind of suggested that psychology had lost its way that it had become too focused on deficit and pathology and what was wrong with people. And actually, there was a whole other side of uh, human experience, which was about people being at their best and their strengths and flourishing and well-being. Uh, and that that was what we should, um, as applied psychologists, should start to focus on and should start to investigate. Um, and since then, it's kind of opened up a whole world of... of um, research and investigation into into happiness and into well-being and into strengths and into optimism uh etc that that just wasn't there before Uh, mainly because the journals wouldn't accept funding for it if if you were a a serious psychologist or an academic and said you wanted to publish a paper or study happiness or well-being you you didn't get the funding and you didn't get a promotion Uh, if you were going to do depression and anxiety you you did very well (laughs) And actually, from that address, he gathered um, people from all over the world, from all kinds of disciplines, not, not just psychology, but from education, from, you know, from social work, from anthropology, etc., to look at what lead to humans being at their best and for communities and individuals to thrive. Um, yeah. So I guess, in a nutshell, psychology is the, is the science of well-being. It's, it's really taking that more evidence-based approach to what is it that leads to the good life? What is it that leads to people to resilience and to and to succeeding uh, throughout in, in any arena? And how can we use that framework of that understanding of positive psychology to help us thrive and flourish in the world, especially in the world that we're living in today? That that there's so much uncertainty, there's so much fear. What can we what can we take from the, the field of positive psychology to help us in a really practical way now? Well, I guess that um, the most important thing is, I suppose, that uh, 
at the, at the moment in the world, everyone's looking at roadmaps, aren't they? A roadmap out of the pandemic. And, and for me, what positive psychology does is it provides that roadmap to well-being, to being mentally healthy. And, and it does that through, I suppose, providing an evidence base and a framework for us to put our everyday experiences on. I think, I think in the past, there's been lots of areas within psychology that have looked at well-being, but they haven't necessarily been cohesive or joined together. There's been lots of initiative, lots of things. Some people have called it uh, uh, rejected things because they're wishy-washy. Other people have gone off on one area like self-esteem. What positive psychology has done is is through longitudinal studies, international studies, cross-cultural studies, has really started looking at what is the evidence that we can gather that really makes a difference to human beings individually, in groups, in in whole communities and organisations. In fact, even in countries, there are countries now that use positive psychology frameworks for the development of the whole nation. So, yeah. Mm. And can you give us an idea of what of what that framework might look like? So, for somebody listening to this, that's that's in a school, what might one of those frameworks look like, or the framework look like that that could help them? The the framework. The framework. Yeah. The, the one, <laughs> there, there are a number actually. That there are a number of people that uh, that draw in from from the science to to develop frameworks. So there are a whole range of them actually. Um, you know, it's good to, to look at a few, but the, the main one, the one that I would tend to use, uh, mainly because it's got such um, international use and backing, is, is the PERMA framework, which, which a number of listeners may have heard of, um, devised by Martin Seligman. But that, that looks at well-being and flourishing in a number of areas. So PERMA stands for, um, the P stands for positive emotions, mm-hmm. recognition that positive emotions are, are the driving force behind a lot of um of the good things that happen and generating positive emotional states not just joy and happiness but but uh, but optimism curiosity contentment gratitude and there's a, again a range of um studies now showing the benefits of those uh, the e would be for engagement so we've tended to think of, of well-being and it's got lost a little bit in terms of just emotional well-being and people think about uh, well-being in terms of that but actually what positive psychology says well it's emotional well-being but it's it's not just about feeling good it's very much about doing well it's about your engagement with the world and that's what the e is it's it's about uh, well-being is is around being really focused on things being immersed in activities the idea of flow where where the outside world doesn't intrude and you lose a sense of time because you are so engaged um the r stands for relationships I don't think there's any area of scientific study around human flourishing that doesn't prioritise relationships. Uh, and so it's a recognition of that. And then the uh, M and A in PERMA, are, uh, the M stands for meaning and purpose. The recognition that well-being is never just about the individual and me, it's always within a social context and that human beings need to feel uh, connected to things unvalued and that they're making a contribution. So that there is some purpose in what we do, and the A is accomplishment. We have a, a kind of biological imperative to grow and to develop, and it's that sense of moving forward and getting better and improving in in all arenas of life, whether that be as a friend, as a partner, uh, as as a, a student at school, in sports, or in any area of our life. It's that sense of growth and that that need to feel that we are um, competent. Mm. And and so how, in a practical sense, um, how could somebody use 
the PERMA framework, which I love. All of those words just evoke, you know, positive feelings, don't they? And how could we use that in a, in a really practical sense? Okay, I'm feeling stressed or overwhelmed. I'm worried about things. How do I use PERMA to help me in the moment that I'm feeling like that? Well, I think, and I think that's why I like a framework. I think a framework allows us to, it gives us a kind of, I suppose, in our minds or anywhere else, a visual reminder of, of the areas that we should be considering. It allows us to have a common language around that. So if we're looking at a school, for instance, then, then using a, fr- a framework like PERMA, uh, first of all, would allow, would allow schools to consider the things that they already do that, that fit into that. Where are we good at this? Where, where, do we, where do we do this well already? To recognize that, that you know, they're further along the journey than they may have thought. But it also um, allows you as an individual to say, well, where are my gaps? So, so at the moment for me, for instance, um, my, my positive emotions are reasonably good, but, but struggle with my engagement because lots of the things where I, that I used to do whether that be sports, uh, uh, you know, things, or go to concerts, that kind of thing, which because then they're not available to me now. So it's harder to get that sense of engagement. Um, relationships are, are a struggle at the moment. So it's how do I prioritise those even though I can't see people? And, and one thing I would suggest is for, for lots of people, there's an increase in contact. We're all doing Zoom meetings and podcasts and things, but there's a, there's a decrease in connection in really having that kind of uh, meeting and, and talk to people. So uh, certainly with head teachers who I've spoken to recently, lots and lots of huge increase in contacts, but, but very little time for that connection. Yeah. Um, so it's just looking at, at those things. And it's also recognising, I think, that it allows you to challenge some of the myths that are around, I think, particularly at the moment. I, I work a lot with head teachers at the moment and, and they're really struggling, really struggling uh, because of the you mentioned the word uncertainty around and I, I think human beings tend to have a narrative and we like we like certainty we like to to know what's coming next and if we don't know what's coming next we tend to catastrophize yes. <laughs> what's coming next is, is, is really bad in fact I came across a piece of research which really made me smile where they took two groups of participants and um, one group were told they were going to get electric shocks and told when they were going to get the electric shocks so they knew they were coming and the other group we're told they were going to get electric shocks, but it was random, and sometimes they would get them, and sometimes they wouldn't. What a horrible study! Yeah. <laughs> Psychology is a terror. But, um, what was fascinating about it? The ones who were certain that they were getting them, they had a much less stress response than the ones who were uncertain, even though what they were getting was an electric shock. Yeah. Because we like to have that certainty, and and, and I think at the moment what what people are really struggling with and the head struggling is is this constantly being bombarded with new initiatives and new and new things and not being able to ever switch off almost but what compounds that for them is is they're really struggling with the idea that their performance isn't as good and they're not doing really well then they're they're not accepting of the fact that it's okay you're supposed to be struggling at the moment expecting to keep performing at the same level that they were and then feeling bad because they're not Um, and I'll, I'll often ask a group you know just on Zoom, showing their showing their, their uh, art, uh, artificial hands. Uh, <laughs> put your hands up. Uh, you know, if you're having trouble sleeping compared to before the pandemic, and most of them will say yes. Put your hands up if you're struggling with decision making, and they're 
put their hands up and say yes. You put your hands up if you're drinking slightly more. Okay, the yes, so the hands are going up. Lots of those things, and yet they they're beating themselves up a little bit about that. And so for me, again, Perma says, well, you know, what that explains, it's okay. You should understand this because you can't be meeting all these needs. All your no- normal strategies for reaching your well-being have been changed. And what would you say then to to an individual listening to this or to the group of heads that you work with? What would you say to them that that are struggling to sleep, are struggling to to focus or beating themselves up? What would you advise? Well, the first thing I would say, and it's become a little bit of a quote that's going around lots of places, but it's okay to not be okay. But I think I think that's really serious. You know, for, for most people, the, the normal reaction to this current situation is, is not to feel good, is to struggle with those things. Mm. And I think acceptance of vulnerability is a really important one. Yeah, could you it, expand on that a little bit, acceptance of vulnerability? Well, I think there's a need uh, for both teachers and, and for head teachers, but for lots of us, we mistake kind of strength for resilience. So trying to appear calm, trying to appear as if things aren't bothering you, trying to appear as if you're not in the middle of a pandemic, that's mistaking, that's, that's not resilience, that's strength. That's trying to be strong and, and, and thinking coping is, is being calm. Whereas I think there has to be an acceptance for people of their reactions to these circumstances. And their reactions are not abnormal, their reactions are your brain and body doing what it's supposed to do. In, in the face of a long-term adversity, then our body shuts down a little bit. It has to, to conserve energy. And therefore, most of us are feeling a little bit, yeah. yeah. You know, most of us have got foggy brains at the moment because of the pandemic. But because we've got foggy brains, we don't realise we've got foggy brains. and we, we have a go at ourselves for not being able to cope as well. So one of the things I would say to head teachers, uh, I would is to look at um, cognitive load theory or cognitive bandwidth theory, which says we only have a certain amount of capacity for making decisions and choices and and, and that kind of executive functioning. And there are three things that have a real impact on that. One of them is novel situations. When anything is novel or new to us, then we we have to consciously pay attention to it. And and I don't think we realise how much of our life is automatic. And much of our life we do without thinking. So turning up at a meeting, going to the shops. But now all of those things require thought. They're all novel. Going to a meeting involves fiddling around with the audio and checking yes. whether the video is on and seeing it's there. The other thing that affects it is anxiety and stress and, and, and things. We know that from any time you have to speak in public or if you uh, about to take an exam, then your capacity to remember and focus goes. And also if we have a lot of extraneous information, if we have lots of information coming in, you know, so from the news, from other people, and we've got schools who are getting new guidelines that come in at half four on a Friday just before a bank holiday Monday kind of thing. And and so, you know, self-care for staff, giving themselves a break, accepting that you can't be performing at the same level as you were before. It's It's almost physiologically impossible to be doing that. Yeah, and I and I really like that acknowledgement of our cognitive load because we expect so much of ourselves and we expect so much of our minds, you know, where 
to trying to intellectually figure this out. But when you look at these three things, so uh, dealing with a novel situation, anxiety and stress, um, extraneous and new and complicated information that we're trying to have to figure out, we're giving our minds, our cognitive load, a huge burden. And that is exhausting. It's absolutely absolutely exhausting. exhausting. Yeah, which is why... Funnily enough, we're all exhausted yeah. <laughs> and lacking motivation. I've got, you know, with the team of psychologists, and it's fascinating in supervision with them. There are some of the team who are asking me to help them prioritize their diaries. These are people who've been working for 20 years. Now, when you're a first year student, yeah. one of the key skills you learn is how to prioritize your diary. And they're coming into supervision saying, I can't, I can't decide what is right and what's a priority and what I should be doing. I'm getting overwhelmed. And yeah. And it's those kind of, of things. So, so I think with with heads, it is yeah, and staff, it is recognise that, yeah. allow for that, but also, um, and then alongside that, then really focus on that self care. Yeah, it's so that. interesting because I I usually plan out my week on a Sunday evening. I spend some time reflecting, and then I plan out my week. And I've I've found that myself. Just I find it harder to prioritise. It takes me ages to think. Oh, of all of these things on my to-do list, and it's it's so interesting because I just thought that was just me. I I, I didn't even really recognise that as a thing, but it definitely is. And I and I have a lot of coaching clients, and I work with them, and everybody's really finding that hard to figure out what is the the highest and best thing for me to be focusing on right now. Yeah, and there are so many things to focus on. Yeah, I, mean, I think a great it's not particularly psychological, but a great truism. In the research is at times when we're feeling really fatigued and we're feeling really overwhelmed and, and too much on the plate. And the answer is nearly always do less. <laughs> it's nearly always that. And just, just what which of those plates can you can you stop spinning? And do you know the number of people who have not um, don't give themselves a break or just get out of their head for a while, yeah. where um, almost need permission to you know at lunchtime just take yourself for a ten minute walk. Yeah. Just go out and do that or practice a little bit of mindfulness, if that's your thing, or listen to some music or watch some comedy. We know some heads who actually watch bits of comedy. They save bits of the American office to watch. <laughs> For me, it's, uh, uh, you know, a great one is my dog. I mean, if you, if you want to improve your well-being, get a dog. Yeah. Marvellous. You know, it's, it's uh, just the walks with it and, and stroking the dog. It doesn't have to be a dog. Yeah. Yeah. Or a guinea pig, another person stroking anything is apparently very good for us. It definitely, well, it produces all kinds of lovely hormones in our body, doesn't it? Oxytocin and dopamine does lovely things. And another thing I've really been focusing on for myself and for people I'm working with is rest and the different types of rest. And it doesn't mean napping, although, you know, if you have the ability and the need for that, then napping is great. But but just resting, like resting your eyes, how much time we spend on our screens, it's actually really tiring for our eyes because our optic nerve, it's not used to just looking straight ahead at a screen. It's used to looking at, imagine that we're in a room, we look around the room and make eye contact with different people and connect and we look at our, you know, so it's absolutely tiring for our eyes to be looking in a fixed spot. So just resting your eyes. I have a little flowers in front of me. I have different things to look at while I'm on the screen um, to rest my eyes, but just to rest my mind, as you say, to um, read something for pleasure or, or watch some comedy, or but they're just different kinds of rest 
to build in yes. moments of those throughout the day just to reduce that cognitive load and give our minds a rest from all of these huge demands that we're putting on it right now. I think that's right. I think that's right. And, and in all of those things you suggested as well, I think at a time when we, so many things are random and external and out of our control, then we have to take control of the, those areas that we can and, and that means you know in the next half an hour or in the next day or whatever but but really focus on on those things and put some boundaries around those and whether that be about rest or whether it be about exercise or or uh, you know emotional self-care whatever that may be I, I think it is find those things that we can yeah control. definitely and something we talked about just b- before we came on was some um, the importance of negative emotions and that sounds kind of contra to positive psychology so let's talk a little bit about negative emotions and the and the very important role they have to play yes i know if there's been a criticism of the positive psychology movement it has been um because of its ignoring of negative emotions i think that's a misreading of it to be honest but there's there has been an emphasis on positive emotions and and, and without a doubt, positive emotions are perhaps the most important aspect of, of um, mental health and well-being. Finding things that generate positive emotions. And as I said, that, there's, there's quite a, a range of those aside from just happy and joy, you know, the, the, the things that we don't think about in terms of like, like gratitude, I think I mentioned, and, and contentment and optimism and things. But alongside that, a little bit become this complete focus on positive emotions and that you must have positive emotions and positive emotions are the be all and end all um which has led to some people who i know and who i work with and, and things who actually get a then a double dose of negative because they say in the middle of this pandemic they feel bad or they feel down or they feel anxious and then they feel guilty about being anxious because they should be feeling good and so you end up getting into an even worse cycle or they feel shame or embarrassment or we have people giving advice which would be you know uh if you're feeling down in work well you think you've got it bad you know there's other people someone else. Yeah. yeah or or if you're ill well there's people dying or and a tendency to try and just gee everything up now actually positive psychology is never said that exclusively a, a large part of it is you can't achieve in life you can't become resilient uh, without dealing with distress, without learning how to manage those things, without learning how to overcome difficulties, learning how to calm your anxiety. But I worry sometimes, and I've seen it in a lot of arenas now, that people are, are almost criticised for feeling negative and expressing negative emotions. And therefore, what they do is try and suppress them or try and hide them and actually that's that's really bad for you because it will come out in some way you know if you have a bad day at work and hide it and you come home and kick the dog (laughs) it's not good but 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 there is a tendency to do that because of of not wanting to so some people have referred to it at the moment it's a very buzz phrase is toxic positivity Mm. where people feel it's their job to sprinkle stardust over everything and sanitize everything and and i and I, i I don't agree with that, and I, and I think it's it's not what positive psychology is or or uh, should be, and, and it's a misreading of it. It, it should yeah. be about acknowledging um, our negative emotions. 
whatever they be. Um, and at the moment, I think the number one is anxiety for people. And um, I, I think the phrase is anxiety is not the enemy. No. Um, and what the research would show was we have to embrace our emotions, negative and positive. It doesn't mean wallow in the mud with them and, and just stay down there, but, but acknowledging that that's, it's a feeling and that's okay. And I can deal with this and I can manage this. And you make a really great point there, Simon, that there are feelings. And when we turn them into, rather than saying, I'm feeling anxious, when we say, I have anxiety, mm. we're really medicalizing it and we're pathologizing it rather mm. than just acknowledging, yeah, I'm feeling anxious because there's a lot happening in the world that, that makes me feel this way. So how, what would you say to that, having a more social approach than a medical one? Yeah, I, I, mean, I would completely agree with that. He just reminded me of a young um, young man I met, I was working with, who when I asked him what he thought the issues were that I was seeing him for, he said, I've got that anger management. <laughs> <laughs> I have anger management. Well, it's actually not a, not a thing, but, um, I, but that was how he defined himself because that's what he'd been told. And, and I, you know, labels, labels are really powerful, aren't they? All, all labels are really powerful. And, and I do worry... A little bit at the moment in this whole field that we are labeling and, and pathologizing huge um, natural responses to difficulties, um, both to ourselves, the things that we label ourselves, I'm, you know, I'm useless, I'm no good at this, I'm, I'm depressed, I'm anxious, rather than I'm feeling anxiety at the moment, I would agree. But I think as well, certainly with our children in school, I, I worry about the talk of the tsunami of mental health problems that are going to come after this. Mm. Um, I think it's it, it's leading to a certain narrative and then affects what people look for. I saw, uh, I don't know whether you saw it, there was a thing with Richard Bentall, who's the, a clinical psychologist at Liverpool University. No, no. He did his research um, with a group on the uh, adult responses in terms of their mental health to this pandemic from the start, right from the start, and they've just done their latest one. A few thousand people they've been looking at for levels of anxiety and depression. Mm. The interesting thing is, um, for most people right at the start of all of this, their uh, mental health did uh, mental health problems did increase, their levels of anxiety and depression or low mood. But uh, looking at it now, 60% of, um, of the adults are just the same as they were. Mm -hmm. It hasn't had an impact on their mental health. Um, about 25% have had um, a decrease. There has been a difficulty. Uh, a small number who had mental health problems before were struggling, uh, have carried on struggling, as you would expect. Mm -hmm. And about 10% of people's mental health has improved. Yeah. Quite interesting. So about 70% of people have managed, despite their earlier um difficulties the impact have managed to find a way to get their needs met and cope etc um and yet we're in danger of saying that, you know this tsunami i think it was described of of mm. mental health problems that's coming and the evidence doesn't back that up and in fact most of the issues causing the difficulties were around certain populations so it was um people who are young people with young children at home were, were struggling not actually people with teenagers at home didn't have any impact which is quite Interesting, given what we think about teenagers. Uh, and the big, biggest thing was uh, whether they'd had uh, economic hardship yeah. during difficulties. And, and 
you know, and as always, so poverty, economic hardship, stress have a big impact on these things. Yeah. And we have a narrative kind of developing around um, children in particular, the difficulties or the, the way they're coping with things. And I, I think we're in danger of pathologizing a whole group of children who've actually just been dealing with a, with a very difficult situation in, in a variety of ways. Mm. Um, and we'll come back to school with those. And the word trauma is being used quite a lot. And that kind of feeds into this narrative that that children will be traumatised by this. Do you see evidence? I guess the bigger question is, as teachers and educators and leaders in schools, what can we be doing? What could a better narrative be? Because you've shown that there's, we have a kind of baseline, don't we? There's very good evidence. We have a baseline of well-being that we tend to fall back to. And that's reassuring that we've kind of, most of us have got there. So what is a better narrative that we could be saying as we welcome um, our, our young people back into schools now and, and carry on from here on. Yeah, I, I do. I do think that the trauma narrative is, is um, whilst understandable, has gone a little bit too far. I think um, we're taking a lot of that, and I'm starting to see that from reports from school around children and parents, and and everything's being blamed on childhood trauma. It's as if, <laughs> to me, it's as if we never had an understanding for the last 30 or 40 years that our experiences that have an impact on how we deal with the world, both positive and, and negative. Um, I think we've just, just seem to be discovering all oh, children who've had a difficult um, time of it, they're going to be traumatized. Uh, uh, some people are going even further and then talking about it as if this is having this big impact on brain structure and things. And I, I've actually seen reports where children are described as having brain damage because their parents split up kind of thing. And it's mm -hmm. really a dangerous narrative, I think. Now, of course, children will be impacted by what's happened to them recently, but they, they're not um, passive recipients of all this happened. They've been living for this last year and they will have their own perceptions and support networks and different ways of interpreting it. So the things that we can do in school, I think, are first of all, um, acknowledge that and see that as a priority. Our priority shouldn't be around uh, trauma and diagnosing and treating. It should be about empathising that their experiences and giving them a chance to explore that. They, they haven't had a year of not doing anything. They've had a year of making sense of things and some of their key relationships are with adults in schools. Uh, and now is the time for them to use those key relationships to build back up their well-being, to share those experiences to to talk about them to be interested in them and um i have a real concern with the catch-up yes oh god yes <laughs> you know just this idea that, that, that children just have to catch up now and, and they need extra lessons to catch up on all the things they've missed mm. i mean the question is catch up to what some arbitrary level that was assigned to children um and i thought one of the saddest things during the pandemic in terms of children, the things that young children, primary age children, missed the most was friends. That was the thing they were most worried about, friends. And for our adolescents, you know, high school students, their number one fear was not being able to catch up, was being left behind. Mm -hmm. And and I thought in the middle of a, a global pandemic where, where hundreds upon thousands of people are dying, their biggest worry was falling behind in their schoolwork. Mm -hmm. And I think that's, that's something that says we've got our 
priorities wrong. And um, so for schools, I think it is using those relationships you've built up, recognizing that children's experience is much wider than catching up on the academics, mm. that it's about other opportunities to express themselves. And there's a, a lovely framework that I um, work towards called the, the HOPE framework. And HOPE is, um, it really describes uh, health outcomes from positive experiences. And it's a framework that looks at what are the experiences that all children need in order to have healthy outcomes. I suppose it's the kind of antidote to the ACEs, to the adverse childhood experiences and, and what leads to difficulties. This is saying that what are the things that all children need in order to nourish their well-being and will actually have a more profound impact on those children who've had the most difficult time. And they're, they're not things that would surprise anyone. There are, there are four, four things. The first one is positive, supported, nurturing relationships. Schools are already fantastic at that. That's just what needs highlighting, those connections. Make sure that opportunities for those are further developed and for peer group work and for, for that sense of belonging. Not So just giving extra hours in English and science and maths is not going to do that. So nurturing those relationships is, is first one. The second one is, is having safe, stable and equitable environments in which to learn, play and develop. Mm. So providing environments where children feel safe, where they have a voice, where they, they feel equal, where they feel listened to, etc., and where they can learn, but also where they can play and develop. So that, that's where the positive emotion side comes in. Let's have engagement. Let's have play. Let's look at drama and arts and PE and, and all of all of those things. And I think we sometimes forget that prior to the pandemic, children's mental health was falling you know they were struggling with all kinds of things yeah. and 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 not just from external influences you know some things were around school curriculum and and, and various things so find those opportunities and um, the third aspect is for children to have meaningful or opportunities for meaningful participation in social events for social connectedness mm. so rituals around schools that they've missed, which can be something as simple as, you know, in the dining hall or assemblies or celebrations or, or productions or music or any of those things or helping in the community. And, and it's fascinating, the research around, what, you know, what, what, is, what are the things that, that make the biggest impact to, to buffer against early childhood trauma and things? And it's not therapy. It, it's things like um, the last years that came out in Wales just before the pandemic for children who have four or more serious trauma traumas in their life. The number one thing that made a difference in terms of buffering from that was sports participation. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Sports participation came was huge. And, and I, I think actually that's because sports is more accessible. I think it would have been drama as well and music and art and lots of things to allow you to express yourselves the other ones that were really high on the list were um community rituals yeah being part of things as a community and that's what this level is in school get, get, where's that sense of community that sense of value that sense that we're going somewhere that you're participating in it mm -hmm. really really interesting so none of these things are um about the individual they're, they're always about the social and the environment. And then the fourth one in the HOPE framework is um, 
social and emotional learning skills, understanding that this is not a deficit problem, this is not a, a, a problem of personality, it, it's quite often an issue of skills development. The children need to learn skills of managing emotions, of managing situations. And so, so do adults, you know, just, just learning things that we're, that we're uh, maybe not used to. Someone told me a great story, uh, which I liked about this, that if you go to a golf professional to improve your game, and they watch you have a swing, they wouldn't then say, I can tell by the way you're swinging, you've got a very bad relationship with your father. And you know, what they would do is say, you need to hold it a little bit, then they'd give you tips on the skills you need to improve without going through all the other things. And I quite like that. I think it's, what are the skills? And this is not just for children, um, but adults, it's huge, I find this. I was working with a group of 43 head teachers, and they highlighted that their biggest cause of, of uh, well-being and stress problems for them actually turned out to be conflict, difficult conversations with parents, with colleagues, etc. And, and that was their number one source of stress. Yeah. And so I said, that's really interesting. Um, so how many of you have done any training on conflict management skills? Out of the 43, zero, not one of them. And then I asked, so how many of you actually done then assertiveness just just skills of being assertive having it within a conversation a different conversation again not one wow not one of them and they said all their staff were the same and, and so you know when we're talking about skills learning how to have difficult conversations in an assertive way but what that leads to an outcome is a real skill and if you go to lots of other organizations they will do that kind of work schools for some reason we we don't focus on on skills and i think that's um that's a bit that's missing. So my thing for schools is, of course, there are, there are children that, that will need extra support, but really you need to look at your universal offer at every level of the school. What are you doing in terms of promoting mental health, either through a PERMA framework and positive psychology, where are you meeting those needs? Where are you providing the relationships and, and the environment and the, and the skills teaching and, and the opportunities for children to participate and staff? Um, and I would look at it at that universal, then targeted around certain groups and then individual, but, but using those things. But without, if we start with targeting individuals, then our research shows us that um, it's a very little benefit. Individual work with a, a child is very little benefit unless within a school, and unless they are attending a school that promotes the mental health and well-being of all because it's that environment and the social things and all the connections that, that really make the difference and allow them to learn the skills or the insights they've gained from, from the individual work. That is incredible. And Simon, it feels like a, a good place to wrap up. We've already, I could speak about this all day and listen to you okay. talk about it all day. It's so fascinating, but I love that idea and the notion of the, a very holistic view that creating an environment that, that these things are possible. The frameworks are fantastic and I'll make sure that they're in the show notes for people who might be driving or cooking or whatever and they might not have been able to make notes. I'll, I'll definitely okay. include these in the notes so people can see them. Is there anything you'd like to say just before we, we do a final wrap-up, Simon? I guess the only thing I would say and, uh, is these are very diff difficult times. Um, human beings have incredible self-writing capacities. I've always been very interested in resilience. And whilst we need to acknowledge the challenges, I, I do think there is an opportunity to, to, to grasp this. 
and to look at how we might change things, whether there are priorities or how we do things. Um, I've certainly noticed a bigger interest in well-being at school for staff and for children, but looking at it in a much more holistic way of seeing how important it is. And I think if you look at times in the past, whether it be things like this plagues, the Black Plague and the Black Death across Europe that led to the Renaissance. Mm-hmm. When we had the Second World War, it led to the whole welfare system and the NHS, etc., really expanding. And, and, I, and I do think that out of adversity comes a time to be really creative. I think it's when humans, when we are at our most creative. And, and I, I would say to, to staff in schools and to head teachers and to everyone that, that these are the times to just reevaluate, to see what's important. And, and to focus on that as we move forward. Fantastic. I love that. Yeah, it's, it, it's, it could be the defining time of our lives. We could make it that. We really could. Thank yeah. you, Simon. It's been a real pleasure speaking with you. I've been speaking with Simon Ward. Uh, you can connect with Simon via email, um, and I'll put this in the show notes as well. That's Simon underscore P underscore Ward at hotmail.com. Um, I'm assuming you're on LinkedIn or other places, but um, but email feels like a good place yeah, for you to, to connect. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today, Simon. Thank you very much for having me, Maria. It's been a pleasure. Thanks so much for listening. Now check out our website, pursuitwellbeing.com. If you enjoyed the podcast, please hit the subscribe button in your podcast app. And if you feel inspired, please rate and review it and share it with your friends. I love getting your feedback and learning how we can improve our program.